Well, good morning. This is exciting. It's exciting to be here with you this morning. God is good. Amen. All the time. All the time. Got a few. Try it again. God is good. All the time. All the time. All the time. All the time. To get it started, I want to ask you a question. Some of you will be able to answer it. Most, most. Uh, there's a few young workers now in here. Where were you May 31st, 1995? May 31st, 1995. Maryland. Maryland. <laughs> On May 31st, 1995, I was in Omaha, Nebraska. Specifically, I was at the Army Recruiting and Receiving Post. I was signing the last of my paperwork and preparing for a four-year job in an M1A1 tanker. I was headstrong. I was excited, and I was ready to take on the world. I was finally free of my parents. Maybe they were free of me. I was ready to leave everything behind and get on with my life. At 17, I had the world by the tail, and there wasn't anything that could get in my way, including God. As a final act of rebellion towards my parents, Ultimately, God, I had taken the study Bible my parents gave me as a teenager, tossed it casually in the garbage as I walked out the door. I had made a confession of faith when I was a kindergartner, and I had dutifully gone to church camps, youth, uh, youth groups, Sunday morning services, Sunday evening services, Sunday school, weekly prayer meetings. But I'd done... But I had done all those things and, and zealously sometimes and somehow managed to never really grasp the true meaning of the gospel. My gospel was one of checks and balances. I had obeyed when people were, were looking or could see. Uh, another way to say it is I had an outer righteousness. But on the inside, I was disobedient, prideful, and unwilling to acknowledge the grace that God so lovingly offers each of us. That's what legalism will do to a person. You can, you can only do the right thing out of obligation for so long before you start to think like the Israelites in Malachi. You turn to Malachi. Last book of the Old, the Old Testament there. Malachi, and we're going to go to chapter 3. Malachi 3, uh, verses 14 to 15. Malachi 3, verses 14 to 15. This is God speaking to the Israelites, and he says... You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Paul knew this. This was a result of legalism. And it's why he fights so hard in many of his books against it. He knew the gospel of grace, when manipulated to include works, was no gospel at all. Instead, it was a gospel that only promised pain on earth and hell for eternity. Paul understood, and we've spent the last few weeks studying this, that the true gospel led to a relationship, not a disconnected and indifferent lifestyle, one that only produces false pride and arrogant righteousness. So today we're going we're gonna to continue our study of Galatians. We're going to go to Galatians 1, and we're going to start at verse 11, and we're going to go through uh, verse 24. If you have your Bibles, you want to pull those out. If you have a smartphone, you want to pull that open, feel free. I suggest the, uh, my, my favorites are Blue Letter Bible app or the Bible Gateway app. 
They're both free and they have functionality, functionality uh, that goes beyond just reading the Bible. There's commentaries. You can actually have somebody read the Bible to you. If you ran out of the door and you left your Bible sitting on the counter, which I have done before, uh, feel free to pop your hand up and we'll, we'll grab you a Bible and, and bring it. Everybody got one? Sure. The translation I use up here is the NASB uh, 1995. And someday I'll go through all the different translations and why we use certain translations. But just know that the NASB 95 is, is one of the closest translations to the word for word from what we get from the Greek text. So when the interpreters go through and they interpret the Greek, uh, NASB is one of the closest to that. Getting back to today's text, we understand that uh, from our previous studies, we understand that Paul's fighting a battle on two different fronts. The first front is, the, is the, these Judaizers that come into the church and they're saying, well, Paul's not really an apostle. He didn't really walk with Jesus. He didn't really know Jesus. So he doesn't really have any authority. And then the second front is they're saying this gospel is nice. You know, this whole Jesus thing is great and all, but you also need to add works to it. And you need to add circumcision to it. And so Paul's fighting both of those fronts all throughout this book. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at the attack on his apostolic authority. Today, we want to look at, at uh, Paul defending against that first attack. And we're going to look at Galatians 1, starting in verse 11. If, you, if you're able, would you please rise for the, the reading of God's word? Galatians 1, starting in verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem and became acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us, now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth in your word that never changes. In a world where truth is, is being corrupted every day, or where, where there's deconstructionism and, and and people are trying to destroy what, what real truth is, or your truth never changes. And we thank you that we can find your truth in this, your word, the Bible. Lord, thank you again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated. <clears throat> so we can see right out of the gate, starting verse 11 there, that Paul is going to restart the gospel. And we've studied over this. Uh, a bit for the last few weeks, so I don't want to beat a dead horse. But as Paul says in Philippians 3.1, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Amen. So to say the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Amen. So today we're going to look at the gospel restated in verses 11 and 12, 
Then we're going to look into Paul's life before Christ in verses 13 and 14. We'll get a chance to see Paul's conversion story in verses 15 and 16. And finally, we'll get to see what Paul was like with Christ in his life in verses 17 through 24. So let's look at verses 11 through 12. He says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. The uh, for I would have you know is a Greek, comes from a Greek word called uh, norizo. And when it's used at the front of a passage, it's, it indicates a really strong statement. So you could also render it, let me make this perfectly clear. Let me make this perfectly clear that my gospel is not from man. Paul continues in verse 12 and he says, I never, I neither received it, nor was I taught it. And the importance of that statement might be a little lost on us in the 21st century. But to the Jews at that time, that would have been crystal clear. You see, Judaism had, had gone through it and watered down the gospel. Judaism had gone through and watered down God's law. And they had invented laws upon laws upon laws which trapped people in a position that made a relationship with God almost unattainable. Around 400 B.C., uh, rabbis began collecting teachings and um, interpretations of the Torah that weren't in the Torah. They claimed that they were influenced by the Torah, but they weren't in the Torah. They initially called these teachings the Oral Torah, and they, they were only able to speak it. It would be named the Halakha, which means walk or go. So the Halakha would be the way in which the Israelites were to walk or the way in which they were to go. The most difficult part, of course, of the halakha was it was oral, meaning the average Joe couldn't pick a copy up at the Barnes & Noble. There was no app, halakha.com, right? <laughs> you couldn't look it up. The only ones that fully knew how the Israelites were supposed to act were the Pharisees and the rabbis. Scripture, at that point, was then given a sort of superficial reverence. Kind of like the queen, the queen of England, right? She rolls out, she does a little, little wave, and then they roll her back in. She doesn't really have any power, right? That, and that's, that's kind of what they did. They, they take the scripture out, roll it out, they give it a little wave, and they roll it back up. And they say, okay, now let's, let's talk about what we really want to talk about. Being an oral set of laws, there then came only one way to pass it on, orally. Meaning the older rabbis would teach the younger rabbis, and when the younger rabbis got older, they teach the younger rabbis, and when they got older, they teach the younger so on and so forth. Like a big game of telephone. So when Paul said that he neither received the gospel from men, nor was taught it, he was speaking directly to the Jews. They would have known exactly what he was talking about there. He was talking about this halakha, or the, the oral Torah. Jesus spoke about it too. Grab your Bible and flip back to Matthew. And we're going to go to chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. And we're going to start in verse 1. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus is speaking uh, to a group. And then, and then some Pharisees and scribes, in verse 1, came to Jesus. In uh, chapter 15, verse 1 of Matthew. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Notice they didn't say, Why do your disciples go against Scripture? Why do your, do your disciples acting ungodly? What did they go after? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Jesus answers them. 
And he says, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Jesus was talking about the halakha there. The, the, um, the uh, Pharisees would go in, and, and they loved to make a big show on when they, when they gave. And, and around the inner court of the, of the uh, uh, temple there, there were these big trumpet-shaped uh, giving thing, and when you put your money in, you know, and draw lots of attention. So they come in, you know, they probably bring a bag of pennies. I, I can just see them doing this right. They go to the bank and exchange like five bucks for pennies. They come with this big bag, oh, you know, and make this huge noise. You know, oh, look how righteous I am. Look how much I give to God. But at the same time, their parents were coming to them and saying, "Hey, we don't, we don't have any money. We're starving. Can you take care of us?" And they, they would look at them and say, oh, I'm sorry. The money that I would have used to take care of you, I gave to the church because I'm so righteous. And Jesus looks at that and says, you hypocrites. Why are you worried about it? People are washing their hands. That's a tradition that you guys came up with. You pulled this out of the Torah. It, God never put that in there. But you're inflicting it on people. While at the same time, the stuff that God did put in there, you're ignoring. That's what... That's what Paul was attacking there when he said, he said, I've never received it, neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. This sort of thing still goes on today. If you go to Jerusalem on a Saturday and you decide to go up to your uh, hotel room on the fourth floor, you may notice that um, there's somebody standing in the elevator, and when you walk in, they push the button for you. And, and even some of the elevators they have specifically set aside for Jews. And, and the reason is they're, they're not allowed to operate machinery on the Sabbath. So somebody has to push the button for them to make the elevator go so that they don't break the law. I'm not sure what, how they get past somebody else operating machinery for them, but they do. <laughs> Judy was in the first service, and she told me she's been there, and, and some places just completely shut down the elevator and you take the stairs. So if, if you want a picture of what the law does, it, the law says... You can't push a button, but you can walk up three flights of stairs. It's easy to chuckle at that too, right? It's ludicrous. But not that long ago, a good Baptist Christian would never go to a movie. Or play a game of Texas Holding. Or go to a church with a drum set. Legalism always leads to hypocrisy. Long before I ever tossed my Bible in that garbage can, I learned that while you were at church, you acted one way. When you were acting in an official capacity, you acted righteous. But the second no one was watching, or at least when you thought no one was watching, you were free to act however you wanted. It was taught to me. It was handed down to me. To honor God with your lips. But your heart didn't need to be anywhere near God. So Paul says that he wasn't taught the gospel from men or tradition, but he received it through a revelation. Amen. And having stated that, 
he received the true gospel. Paul then moves on to verses 13 and 14. He says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral, what's that word? Tradition. Tradition. <clears throat> Verse 13 starts with the word for. Anytime you see for, you look at it and say, what's a for for, right? And he's saying, on account of everything I just said, look at what I'm saying now. For you have heard how I acted in my former manner of life in Judaism. Uh, he says he persecuted the church here. The Greek word for persecute is yoko. And I'm going <laughs> to, since I have to do it, you have to do it. So in Greek, you have to look at the word, and then you have to determine what time frame you're thinking about there. Is it past, present, future? You have to think about is it active or inactive and all that good stuff. So this word here, dioko, is used in the imperfect, meaning it was in the past, active tense, which means he started in the past and he continued. It's still going on. He was constantly persecuting the church. If you turn back to Acts, go to Acts 9, and... Uh, Saul, now Paul, but Saul uh, was at the uh, martyrdom of Stephen, right? They, they, they laid their coats at his feet. And about a year later, we're looking at Acts 9, verse 1, and it says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. It's been a year. He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. You can stay in Acts there, because we're going to go back and take a look at another verse in there. But... Um, He's still breathing threats against the church. And if we look at, at verse 13, he says, um, For you've heard of my former life in the manner of Jude in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God. And this harkens back to last week. Remember when I talked about uh, how the, when he was speaking to the Galatians, he was saying, look, when you turn away from the gospel, when you turn away from the true gospel, you're not turning your back on a philosophy. You're not turning your back on a way of life or a way of thinking. You're turning your back on Christ, mm -hmm. the one that put himself up on that cross. You're turning your back on God. Right? And he, and he continues that theme here. He says he persecuted the church of God. So by extension there, he's saying, yes, I persecuted the church, but really who I was persecuting was God. Paul was persecuting the church, but yes, he was persecuting even more so, he's persecuting Jesus. And he tried to destroy it. The Greek word, portheo, uh, it's destroy. It, you can, these meanings can be taken from destroy, pillage, wreak havoc. It's my favorite, wreak havoc. Right? Used three times in the Bible. And all three were about what Paul was doing to the church. I said we were going to stay in Acts, and I wasn't lying to you. Go to Acts 26. Acts 26. And we're going to start in verse 9 of Acts 26. And Paul is here talking to um, uh, King Agrippa. He's making his defense. And he talks about his life before Christ. And he says, uh, chapter 26 there, verse 9. He says, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being 
furiously enraged at them. I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities. Saul wasn't a good guy at that time, right? <laughs> we go back to uh, verse 14 there. Uh, he says, he was, Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral tradition. How do you advance? How do you advance more than your countrymen? Well, that's easy. Turn to Philippians. Turn to Philippians, go to chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Here's Paul describing himself and the confidence that he put in his flesh. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. I can remember my progression into legalism. When I was a junior in high school, I was selected to go to a young Christian leaders training. I don't remember much about the training. I was there and that was enough. It proved my righteousness. I had the paperwork. I could rattle off a few things about what was going on there so I, I could look good. But my primary reason for being there was there was a cute little girl that I met there. Mm -hmm. And I got to get away from my parents for a weekend. On the outside, I was that golden brown Twinkie. But on the inside, you know the rest. <coughs> Anybody else eat more Twinkies these last couple weeks than I did? <laughs> I even got Corwin eating Twinkies, so he listens to my sermons sometimes. Paul moves away from his history. And in verses 15 and 16, he says, But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. I want you to think about what he just said there for a second. Because it's an incredible statement. But when God. That's the gospel right there, right? But when God. The intrusion of God. God the Father reaching into time to alter its course. Forever. But when God. Do you remember your but when God? Maybe you were listening to a pastor on a Sunday morning. Maybe you were at a church camp. Maybe you were talking to someone who was sharing the gospel with you. As for me, I was in my apartment and I was reading my Bible. I don't even know where I'd gotten it. I had made a profession of faith as a kindergartner and then spent the next 15 years living like a heathen. Living with a righteousness no deeper than a sunburn. Living like I could manipulate the creator of the universe with a ridiculous show of good works and a passing knowledge of the Bible. But when God revealed the depth of my sin, when God ripped through the veneer that I had so carefully painted over myself and exposed the filth within, I was shaken to my core and couldn't stop saying over and over, Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for my sins. Paul continues, and he says, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb. I just want you to think about that for a second. Let me read it again. 
who had set me apart even from my mother's womb. We know that anything created has a creator. And anything uh, created, the, the creator is outside of that creation, right? I don't bake a cake inside the cake. I bake the cake, the cake is there, I'm outside of the cake, right? This means that God created millions of galaxies and stars and planets, but he also created time. Which means he's outside of time. Meaning he knows everything in the past, the present, and the future. Amen. Which means God knew exactly what Paul was going to be like when he was Saul. Mm-hmm. And he still saved him. Mm-hmm. He knew that Paul was going to persecute the church. He knew that the people would lay their coats at Saul's feet while Stephen was being martyred. He knew that Saul would cast his vote to kill Christians. He knew that Saul would compel Christians he locked up to blaspheme Jesus. And I'll take it one step further. God knew everything you were going to do from the time you were born until he saved you. And yet, he still sent his son to die for you. Every time you hated someone, every time you lusted for someone or something, every time you told a little white lie, every time you told a big fat lie, every time you were too embarrassed to talk to somebody about Jesus, every time you looked him in the proverbial eye, and did exactly what he said not to do. He knew you were going to do that. And yet he still sent his son to die for you. And if we continue in that verse, we see that God not only did all of that setting aside from our mother's womb stuff, he called us through his grace and was pleased, pleased to reveal his son in us. He extended grace, the legalism destroyer, unmerited favor, and despite the horrible things that he knew we would do, was pleased to do it. This is the weight that crushed me that day. This is the thing that drove me to my knees under the weight of my sin and caused me to fall into his arms, casting my sin at the feet of the cross and crying out, Lord, save me a sinner. For I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. All I have is rubbish. I need your grace. It's at this point that some people might say, whew, it's over. God did what he set out to do, right? He set us aside from our, our mother's womb, and he saved us. End of story. But Paul doesn't stop there. Mm-hmm. Neither should we. Sure. We need to keep reading. <laughs> Verses 15 and 16. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. You see, God is a God of purpose. He does things with reasons. Paul was to preach to the Gentiles. He was set apart in his mother's womb to study the Old Testament so that he would know it backwards and forwards. He was set apart in his mother's womb to have zeal. And when it pleased God, he received grace through the Lord to preach to the Gentiles. At this point, I feel compelled to ask you, what did God set you apart for in your mother's womb? We can't say Paul an apostle or Lance an apostle. We can't say that. There aren't apostles anymore. But what can we say? What has Christ called you to? How about Jim the plumber that shares Jesus with all of his customers? Or maybe Benjamin, 
the executive that finances a missionary in Africa. Susan, the mother of five that raises her children to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. Sarah, the Sunday school teacher that week after week opens God's word to the next generation and pleads in prayer for their little souls. You can't give the excuse that your past is too terrible. Look at Paul. And you can't give that excuse because God knew everything you will ever do if you are a Christian today and was pleased to save your eternal soul by extending the grace of Jesus Christ to you so that you will dot, 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 fill in the blank. If you're sitting there now and you're wondering, you're not sure, you say, well, I don't know what God has called me to do. I don't know. Can I offer this little piece of advice? Start serving now. You may not like it. You might come to youth group with Brandon and Angela and I and sit down with middle school boys and be like, this is not for me. I cannot do this. You might go to Paco's uh, Wednesday Bible study with the seniors. And you might sit in there and say, this is not for me. But you got to start somewhere. I didn't start applying to be the pastor. I started many, 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 many years ago. Start somewhere. Amen. You don't, uh, oh, I said that already. You don't have to go out and apply to the pastor. <laughs> we do have a children's church, though. If you want to look for places to plug in, we have a children's church. You just saw them walk out of here. Uh, we have youth group on Thursday nights. We have a seniors Bible study on Wednesday mornings. Amen. We're going to be looking at getting the men's Bible study up and running soon. And we have had and we will have in the future neighborhood walks where we canvas neighborhoods with invitations to come to church and offer to pray for the community. Those are all good spots to start. Amen. And while this might sound like someone standing here begging for help, it isn't. It's someone standing here offering opportunities to be involved in this church Fulfilling the Great Commission. Amen. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. My, but then God, story led me here. It wasn't a direct path, very obviously. But it was a path that God used to prepare me for this moment, just like he used your path to prepare you for this moment. I have to apologize. I'm breaking every uh, rule in preaching by inserting myself into this sermon uh, so much, and, and normally I won't do that. But as we begin this journey together, I wanted to share a little bit more about myself. And about what brought us here to this point in time so that we can prepare for what God has in store for us in the future. And thinking about how to do that, I was drawn back to the uh, initial questionnaire I was asked to fill out uh, by the search committee when I applied for the position. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole questionnaire with you guys today. Angela's laughing. She's seen it. There's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. But I did want to share with you one question. Question number two. It said, explain how you know you were called to the ministry. I want to read it for you. I changed a few things since I'm reading it, not 
I didn't write it, so. But this is pretty much what I told him. My calling began a few years back. I began noticing the lack of biblical literacy and general apathy towards biblical Christianity in our community and the world beyond. I started praying for God to raise biblical men and women in our church and our community to combat this rising darkness. For the next two years, I prayed earnestly that God would move in our church to make our church a light in our community. As 2020 rolled into our lives, I began to notice what I was seeing happening in our church was actually the opposite of what I had been praying. We began to lose members in key roles in our church. And I began to get hints that not only Pastor Corwin was looking for a calling outside our church, but also clues that Pastor Andy might be retiring. I expressed my concern to a brother who was discipling me at the time. And he joined me in praying for godly men in our church. At the same time, he encouraged me to develop relationships within the church to help prepare everyone for what I was seeing. Prior to 2020, I had been reading and listening to books and sermons on biblical exegesis and homiletics. But 2020 and its events elevated the urgency to which I was consuming them. Then, Pastor Corwin announced his acceptance of a call in the church in Illinois. And I realized that our church was down to one pastor. And I had concerns that he was going to be retiring soon, too. God is good, though. And he began bringing new families with sound biblical doctrine and a concern for the church and its impact on our community. Amen. He also began to move men and women within the existing church. And we started seeing our church crave God's word despite 2020 setbacks. Fast forward to early 2021. And I was still praying for God to bring about revival and prepare us for what I assumed was Pastor Andy's retirement. I remember exactly where I was. About three or four blocks that way. I was at a customer's house. I remember exactly what I was doing. I was emptying out. I took the basket off the back of the mower there, and I was dumping it into the greens barrel. And I was listening to Al Mohler's Feed My Sheep, passionate plea for preaching. And the chapter was speaking about exegetical preaching and the, the power that it had and the power that this book has to move people. This book has to change lives and transform churches. And I said, God, we need men like that. And I'm not saying that God spoke to me. But my brain does like to play devil's advocate with me sometimes. And the thought popped into my head, why not you? Why not you? That thought was overwhelming. It stopped me in my tracks. And I remember thinking, Lord, if that's what you want, I'll do it. But you will have to show me that this is not just me foolishly thinking more of myself than what I should. I don't have time to go into every detail, but suffice it to say that God more than answered my question, to the point that when I spoke about my perceived calling with Pastor Andy on that day of the first leadership meeting where he announced his retirement, I was able to discuss my calling with him with confidence. Before I spoke with the newly formed search committee, my wife and I decided to fast and pray to really be sure our calling was in Brentwood Bible Fellowship. What we determined was that we did indeed feel like God was calling us to Brentwood Bible Fellowship. So I announced my interest to the committee and signed up for seminary. And here we are. Amen. I looked it up because I'm, I'm weird that way. What day was that? I'm sure I've got a text message or something. Sure enough, I had a text message. 
April 28th, 2021, was that very first day that I talked to Pastor Andy. Almost, almost a year ago, about 11 months. One of my greatest fears about telling you this story is that you may think that it's about me. It's not. A story about a follower of Jesus is never about that person. Rather, it's about what God has done for that person, for his glory. This story, if I had written it, would have ended tragically. It may have gone on for a while longer, but all stories about life end. The real tragedy is a story that ends without Jesus. A story that ends without a but-then God. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and in an instant his life was changed. Starting in the middle of verse 16 and continuing on through 24, Paul outlines the various activities he completed after his but-then-God moment. And he ends this section, um, starting with verse 21 and going through 24, he ends with this statement. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. I don't think any of us have a conversion story as amazing as Paul. But if you've placed your trust in Jesus, and you've made him the Lord of your life, you can know that God has set you apart for something. And I can tell you from experience that when you find that something, you won't want to do anything else. 